0: This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone.
1: Are we going to stand with God? Come what may.
0: If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. What is a pastor? Is he a visionary? Is he a motivational speaker, an administrator? What about a multi-branded tech-savvy conference speaker? Well, many Christians today might have a hard time answering that question because so many pastors today take on so many different forms. And as we know, not all of those forms are biblical. And that's what's really important. We need to understand what the Bible says a pastor should be. And I think, for example, of 1 Peter chapter 5, which says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. What does it mean to shepherd the flock in practical terms? It's a great question, and we're going to talk about it today with Dr. Harold Sankpile. He is an executive director of Doxology, the Lutheran Center for Spiritual Care, and has pastoral experience spanning nearly five decades. And today we'll be talking about his wonderful new book. It's called The Care of Soul cultivating a pastor's heart. Dr. Sankbau, it's wonderful to have you here. How are you?
1: Oh, great. What a, what a joy to be with you today.
0: Well, it's a joy for me to have you. I have to throw this in before we start talking about your book because I am such a big fan of your other books and I was delighted to be able to read this one as well. I'm just delighted wow. that you're able to be here.
1: Well, thank you. It's an honor to visit with you.
0: Well, thank you. This is really an important question, isn't it? What is a pastor? And I'm wondering how you would answer that, because that is, in some respects, a very big question, but in some respects, it's pretty narrow, too.
1: I think you're right, uh, Janet. Uh, The uh, the scriptures are quite clear. Uh, One of the texts that you quoted as you were introducing me uh, is very clear, you know, shepherd the church of God. There is a point to to take care of sheep, to tend the sheep, uh, that is to feed them, to guard off predators, to uh, tend to their illnesses. Uh, That historically has been the role of the pastor, realizing, of course, that the, the true shepherd is the Lord Jesus himself, who shepherds his flock. But he does it by means of his word, also in sacramental form, uh, as some Christians also believe and confess. And uh, so Jesus does the work, and we as pastors are really serving him. In fact, uh, uh, we in doxology like to speak of pastors being sheepdogs for Jesus, doing
0: his bidding, (laughs) serving in his name. Yeah, that's great. So absolutely, you have to have the core as the presence of Jesus Christ and the truth of his word. But as you mentioned, the classical texts of pastoral care have always called the cure of souls a habitus, the disposition of the pastor's soul. Can you talk about what that is when we're talking about the character requirements of a pastor?
1: Right. Well, of course, there are certainly moral requirements and you know, ethical requirements. So the boundaries are quite clear in the in the pastoral epistles, as, as was required of of those who serve in the pastoral office. And uh, yet, at the same time, that um, intangible word that's been used historically, the habitus, uh, that is an inclination, a disposition, that's really an inner attitude, more than it is anything else, is, is something that that you really don't get out of a book, um, but rather you grow into it, in my experience, and it's instilled in you as God himself goes to work on you uh, in the practice of the care of souls. Right. You know, I, I like to, uh, you, you, you know, the, the word, the longer terminology of, of pastoral work is exactly that, the care slash cure of souls. And uh, like in the medical profession, um, we are called to be uh, agents of healing. The healing comes from God himself, of course, but in order for a medical doctor to know accurately what to do in each circumstance, he has to develop an aptitude by which he brings together all of his learning of biology and the history and practice uh, of his of his uh, craft. Um, certainly physiology plays into it. There's a science to it. But then there's an art, and we talk about the practice of medicine, and that the, the, the doctors that we, we appreciate most are those who are, are, are men of long experience, who develop a, a real respect for their patients and a respect for their profession. Yes. And uh, that's what I think is in, implied in the term habitus. Um, the pastoral attitude or aptitude is something that grows within us by God's own intervention uh, through his word as we um, as we do that work that's been given to, to us to do.
0: Yes. Oh, I think that's right on the money. And yet, we see some very different versions of Pastor today, don't we? I mean, we've really <laughs> wandered away in many respects when we look sometimes at these big, famous guys up on stage, mm-hmm. and you say, well, wait a minute. How are you caring for souls? How are you shepherding your flock when you have 10,000 people in the audience, right. and you're mainly giving motivational speeches from, from the stage? How do you yeah. look at those situations in light of what the Bible says a pastor ought to be?
1: Well, I guess uh, we should be thanking God wherever his word is is spoken and spoken faithfully. And yet uh, the fullness of of pastoral work is really not accomplished by a magnificent presentation on stage, as moving as it might be or overwhelming the experience might be. And and quite frankly, uh, a lot of these models for ministry borrow a lot more from secular industries like entertainment than they do uh, the life of the church. Yeah. But uh, the uh, I think there's a call to faithfulness that's been there in every generation, but I see it as I look back in my own career and uh, do some exploratory reading. Across the dominations, there's more of a tug uh, for the central work of doing the spiritual care of people, and that is uh, not accomplished by these external... Um, means that no matter how flashy they might be and I think the reason for that is as our society collapses around us we're going to be forced to pay attention to the more important um, concrete and eternal things Mm
0: -hmm. of God. Yeah, I think you're right about that. So when you're talking about a pastor being a spiritual physician, and I like the way you compared that to a doctor. We do rely on doctors to have a lot of experience and knowledge, but there was something you also mentioned. I think of it as a bedside manner, somebody who just is good with people. Would you say that that's a vital part also of being in pastoral ministry is just being able to connect with people and have that easy rapport with most people? Not that everybody will be easy to have rapport with, but just to, to love the flock from from the get-go, just to care about people?
1: Yeah, that's, that's so vitally important. Uh, and those people skills are, again, something you don't you don't uh, really learn out of a book, but you practice them, and it's uh, something you grow up with, you observe in others. Um, pastoral mentoring, I think, is so important. I think that's one thing the church has taught us over the generations, we need to uh, see um, this uh, in action so that we can um, become mimics of, of, of those who are competent and qualified in the pastoral craft and, right. and I do think it is a craft it's it's a uh, something we gauge in um, with high standards of, of, uh, of, of adherence to what what God has given to his church to do so uh, that intangible uh, uh, touch for uh, a sense of people's uh, emotions um, to be in tune with where they're at to be able to relate to them um, in the circumstances that they're living in and and i what what's really helpful to me is that that we see the pastoral work is really an act of love mm-hmm. first of all for the Lord Jesus right. as he said to Peter do you love me Yes, I love you. You know, you know that I love you. Well, then feed my sheep. Right. So, um, doing pastoral work is an act of love for Jesus, and for Jesus' sake, an act of love to the person. And in that process, I get out of the way. I become a channel um, for the love of Jesus to work through me by means of the word that I speak, and the prayers that I pray, uh, and the blessings that I give.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. I think you put it this way. The church already has a Savior. What she needs now is the Savior's servant, someone to do his bidding and bring his gifts, which I think is so important. When you are rooted and grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you understand what you're really doing and that the finished work of Christ is what you're building upon and you are serving your Savior. But it is a lot of work and there's a lot more to come. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back with Dr. Harold Sankpile. His book is called The Care of Souls, cultivating a pastor's heart. We'll be right back after this. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a healthcare program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new healthcare program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that offers affordable healthcare sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples and families, offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. After taking the morning-after pill, this mom immediately felt sick and nauseated as she tried to end her pregnancy. While searching for medical care, she found a preborn center, where she hoped to rule out that she was pregnant. I had an ultrasound done right then and there. After hearing the baby's heartbeat, I instantly thanked God and said, may your will be done, Lord. I'm seven months pregnant now. I thank God every day for my little miracle. Preborn centers are the largest providers of free ultrasounds in America, introducing moms in crisis to the life growing inside of them and sharing the gospel in action. When a mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she'll choose life 80% of the time. Will you join Preborn in the cause for life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible, 855-402-BABY, or there's a Preborn banner to click at janetmefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford Today. Thank you for joining us. It's great to have with us as well Dr. Harold Sankbeil. He is an executive director of Doxology, the Lutheran Center for Spiritual Care, and he has lots of years of experience with pastoral care, and it's all in his book, The Care of Souls, Cultivating a Pastor's Heart. Dr. Sinkba, we were talking about what it means to be a shepherd and what it means to serve Jesus Christ and bringing your gifts to bear in the church. But when we're talking about caring for souls and you're you're dealing perhaps with somebody who is a new pastor or a man who's in seminary right now. What would you say to that man about beginning the pastorate in caring for souls and how that should take place? Because there are obviously a lot of duties that you have as a pastor administratively and so forth, but how do you go about caring for people's souls? What would be some practical on-the-ground tips about that?
1: Okay. Well, first of all, I'd say uh, obviously these these secondary matters are important as well. Uh, I I know someone once said, you know, I, I need to run a church in order to really be a, a shepherd. So the administrative skills are part of things in the contemporary church, and we have to be aware of that. But we're frankly not trained for most of those things, and so identifying uh, skilled volunteers to assist in that I think is important, so that we can focus on the, on the main thing. It's like the, uh, the apostles in the in the congregation in in Jerusalem. They So it's not right to give up uh, prayer in the ministry of the Word to wait on tables. Mm-hmm. So the administrative tasks are, are, uh, are important, but they're not essential. And so, therefore, the essential thing is what's given to the pastor to do, uh, seeing to these secondary matters as well. So uh, some, you know, some tips, as you say, I think I begin where uh, St. Paul does. He uh, says, take heed unto yourself. And to the doctrine, Uh, take heed to yourself and to the flock, um, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So the first object of my uh, spiritual care, or soul care, if you will, would be my own soul. Mm -hmm. I can't be uh, helpful to other people if I myself am suffering, spiritually speaking. So my life of prayer, meditation upon the Word of God, and certainly um, being cared for by another pastor is uh, is so very very important and i would emphasize that to anyone starting on the ministry uh, don't make the mistake that many of us do we just throw ourselves whole hog into doing everything that we we um, we think that everybody wants us to be doing and, and we neglect um, the the crucial things the central things of our own life with our lord jesus by means of his word right
0: Right. That is tough. That is tough. How do you find that pastor? Is it normally a pastor you're working with on staff at the church where you may be, maybe you're an associate pastor, and you go to your senior pastor, or is it generally better to seek pastoral guidance from outside your own congregation?
1: Yeah, well, I think obviously we need to be colleagues um, with those with whom we're called to work day by day, and there's a certain amount of care that we offer one another um, but I think, you know, that is a dual relationship, and so probably better to have someone who is not uh, working side-by-side side with me day in and day out, uh, so he can speak more objectively uh, to me and to my needs. So I would say, um, I'd advise you know, look to look around you for a pastor who, who really values his work, who understands his, his high calling um, to serve in Christ's name instead who has a, a deep uh, love and respect for the, certainly for the Lord Jesus, but also for the people for whom he died, okay. and who speaks uh, lovingly and caringly about his congregation, who demonstrates, in other words, um, the, that he has a, a, a deep commitment to his craft and calling. And, and then I would ask him if I could, in confidence, seek his assistance. Uh, for my own spiritual needs.
0: Good, that's good. Well, there's so much that you have to balance as a pastor. For one, I've heard many, many people make the point that you need to really preserve the pastor's study, so the pastor has enough time to study the Word of God, so he can bring the Word of God to the people when they come together for worship. But what about getting to know people? You know, so when you have a huge church, for example, it's more difficult than if you have a church of under a hundred people. Obviously, if you have a smaller congregation, you'll know people better because it's more feasible to get to know everybody, but how, how should a pastor go about caring for those souls and beginning to form relationships with a congregation such that he can be there in the time of need when they do need, you know, that diagnosis, as you say, an intentional treatment of soul?
1: Well, that's where longevity in ministry is, is so important. And, and sadly, that's all too rare these days uh, to be committed to a particular congregation and flock over, uh, over the years, and in some cases, even over the generations. There's mm-hmm. really no substitute for that, Uh, but just being with people, and it's not always in, you know, crisis situations, but casual situations, to know them and what makes them tick, um, to what's important to them, uh, to understand, you know, to know their family, uh, where they're coming from, um, uh, both in terms of uh, their family history, but also in terms of their values, what's important to them. Uh, I can't do that unless I'm interacting with them. And so um uh, even casual congr- conversations are important, I think, in order to, to cultivate a, a true pastoral relationship. But that said, there's nothing that gets to the heart of the matter uh quicker than when a person is in in crisis. Uh, usually it happens for most people some sort of emotional crisis. But then, of course, pastors are not treating emotions. They're treating souls, and so souls do have emotions. The emotions become symptoms that I can use to get at the underlying um, dysfunction or discomfort and then bring the healing that God provides and to speak his word. And when that happens, um, the, the link between pastor and people is, is amazing to behold, and, and there's really nothing like it. Uh, to be privy to the innermost longings, to the to the deepest fears, and to the most profound um, concerns of individuals, and to do this not out of my own compassion or in terms of building a personal relationship with them, but rather in serving them as uh, Christ's emissary, or as I say in the book, as an errand boy for Jesus, and hmm. uh, to be. I guess the other analogy to be a sheepdog doing the shepherd's bidding.
0: Yeah, that's great. Do you believe that seminaries on the whole do a good job preparing men to care for souls in pastoral congregations, you know, as pastors in congregations? Because that's that's kind of a tricky thing. Seminaries have to cover an awful lot of material, and a lot of it is, you know, preparation, hermeneutics, and being able to preach and so forth. But as far as soul care, do you believe that seminaries have adequately addressed that in terms of training?
1: Well, now you're uh, you're, you're cutting uh, you're close to the bone here because I I actually served on the faculty of a seminary for for six years, <clears throat> and so I, I have a great um, admiration for these valiant professors who are trying their, their level best to instill in these these novices um, a full range of of skills that they can use in practical ministry. It's it's a formidable task, and and I suppose. So the answer to your question is, are they doing a good job? Said, yes. Are they doing everything they can? I think the jury's out on that, um, because for, quite frankly, uh, there's some things that really can't be done during the seminary years. You right. can you can teach an aptitude, an attitude, an approach. Uh, you can create the um, the learning atmosphere uh, where um, people, where, where, where seminarians are given the uh, uh, experiences where they can see experienced pastors at work. And they do that through field education. Uh, most seminaries have an internship year or a vicarage year, a full year of being immersed in ministry. Uh, and then postgraduate, after they come out of the seminary, um, many seminaries also have an immersion experience with a, a core group of, of, of uh, colleagues in ministry under the tutelage of of a mentoring pastor, all these things go together. And I I think we're doing our level best collectively in the seminaries that I know about to, uh, to address that.
0: That's great. That's great. But you're right. Nothing is a substitute for practical experience. That's for sure. You know, when you're sitting in a hospital with a family who has someone dying, you can't replicate that in seminary. There's nothing mm-hmm. you can do there. No, that, that's important. You know, one of the things I really enjoyed that you talked about in your book was your experience growing up on a farm and how you relate that to basically a metaphor for having this long-term view of pastoral care. What insight would you share with pastors about ministry over the long haul and how they should look at that?
1: Well, patience is in very short supply in the world that we live in. Um, we we know what we want, and we want it yesterday. <laughs> and So there's a, that urgency about almost everything, and we're kind of victims of our own technology. We can have things instantaneously almost, and uh, and so we expect that also in ministry, and that's it's really dangerous. Um, I think. Uh, that's, you know, any good farmer knows that. You have to be patient over the long haul. You you do the preparation of the soil, you do the planting, and then you cultivate uh, through the whole growing season. And only finally at the very end of the season comes the harvest. And that's uh, why, you know, the Lord Jesus is using these agricultural images for the life and growth of the church all throughout his, his teaching, of course. And we're uh, so separated from that in our our world of technology that we often think that we just have a magic formula, push the right buttons and things are going to happen in ministry. It doesn't work that way. So, you know, hunkering down for the long haul is, is important. And uh, seeing the place that we're at now, not as a stepping stone to achieve some goal in ministry, some desired uh, position somewhere else, but rather these are the souls for whom Christ died. And the Lord Jesus has entrusted them to a a weakling like me. Imagine that, (laughs) (laughs) that I could, uh, like St. Paul, less than the least of of the saints, that this grace would be given to me to preach to these pe- people the unsearchable riches of Christ. Oh,
0: that's beautiful. Very high calling and a wonderful book, The Care of Souls Cultivating a Pastor's Heart. Dr. Harold Sankfile, my guest, and such an honor to talk to you, Dr. Sankfile. Thank you very much for being here.
1: Oh, what a joy to be with you.
0: Thank you so much. God bless you. And we'll be back right after this. This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Meffer today. In John 4, 24, Jesus says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, this is a really important verse for us to understand, because if we are to worship the Lord in spirit and truth, then we have to know God as he really is, not as a divine genie or a mere pal or a mean or vindictive deity, but as the holy triune God who loved the world so much that he gave us his son. How do we rid ourselves, though, of the caricatures that can confuse our understanding of God's awesome nature and character. We're going to talk about this today with Sid Brestel, who's a retired pastor who served in a number of churches for nearly 50 years, and we'll be discussing his book called God in His Own Image. Sid, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you. And, you know, I just appreciate the way you shared that opening with Sean five and how we just need to have God as He really is.
0: Yeah, well, that really is the theme of the book, isn't it? That we don't get to invent God. We have to actually accept His revelation of Himself and as God.
2: Correct is not. His attributes are not a box of chocolates. I can't pick my favorite. <laughs> That's right. Well, I tend to hoard dark chocolate and, and ignore the rest. And I can't do that with God.
0: Yeah, I hoard that, nothing. I agree with you there. What—what what has been the—the the case in your pastoral ministry over the years? The observations that you have made along the way about the way that people do tend to caricature God.
2: Growing up, Janet, uh, back in when I first begun the ministry in the late '60s and '70s, at least in the Midwest. I think there were more of us. It was the harsher side of God. I used the uh, phrase "cosmic cop" in the in the book. I think more of them had that uh, than a God to enjoy. You know, I think of uh, uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism. Our chief purpose and aim is to know God and enjoy Him right. forever.
1: Right.
2: And that word "enjoy" would have would have clashed with what I had grown up with. I think today it's swinging to the other extreme. Uh, We want a God that's safe, manageable. We love his loving kindness. We love his mercy. We love his grace. And we may not preach against his holiness or his wrath, but we tend to ignore it. Hmm. Not politically correct.
0: No, that's right. Yeah. Do you think that that has coincided with this movement that we've seen in the last couple decades? To we want to reach out to non Christians, so we don't want to present a God that's going to make himself look bad. Is that really what you think is driving some of that at least?
2: Uh, It certainly facilitates it. Um, Whether it's a deliberate choice or because I've made this uh, philosophy of ministry, it's just natural then that I don't talk about the harsher attributes. I'm afraid that more often than not it's a deliberate choice. Let's don't talk about that because it might offend somebody. You know, I wonder how often people, at least here in the Northwest who attend church regularly ever would hear the word hell hmm. today. Right. It just doesn't sell well, no, and yet it's there. It's a reality.
0: Well, exactly. It's kind of funny. I have made the remark several times when people talk about the old hell and brimstone, hellfire and brimstone preachers. And I said, I wish I knew knew a few because I don't know that I could probably count more than one hand's worth of hellfire and brimstone preachers because they're not so much around. And maybe they were in former days, but not so much in my lifetime. And yet Jesus talked more about hell than a lot of other subjects.
2: Isn't that interesting and how we can ignore that? Yeah. You, know, you talk about the hellfire brimstone. You probably still have a few there in the South, Texas, et cetera. Well, you get up here in the Northwest, uh, I don't know if there's any of us left. Mm. That's what I grew up with, though, yeah. hellfire and brimstone. And that's, that's harmful if we don't balance that with mercy and grace. On the other hand, without His wrath, mercy and grace have no meaning. Right. I don't need mercy if God isn't just. Right. I don't need uh, grace if God doesn't punish. And so, I think I use the analogy, I do use the analogy or the metaphor in the book, grace and mercy and loving kindness are like beautiful diamond gems, but they shine the brightest when we put them on the black background, and then put the light of God's Word on them, Mm -hmm. like diamonds, they're brilliant. And the black background are the harsher attributes of God. Right. Well, so the book was built really on, on two words in Romans 11 22, where Paul is talking about Gentiles being grafted in, where the Jewish, the nation of Israel was cut out of the olive tree. He says, behold, the kindness and the severity of God. Yes. And those two words are poles apart, and yet God throws, or Paul throws them side by side. Behold, God's kindness and severity. We need both.
0: Well, we do. And I, I note that you go into what severity really means. And what did you discover about that actual word and how people should understand what it means?
2: Thank you for asking. You know, I, I didn't know this until I began to write a book. Even writing the book, as I share in the preface, was never part of my bucket list. <laughs> but when I began to look at that uh, uh, verse, I looked up those words, and I found out that the word severity only appears in Romans eleven twenty-two, and it appears twice in that same verse. Now, there are adjectives that come from the same root in some other passages that Paul writes. My point is, why would he use the word severity instead of common words like wrath hmm. and anger? And so this very severe word, uh, it was, I found that it was used in the first century in a legal document, where the attorney says the law was enforced to its fullest extent. So we have a God who, who doesn't say, well, boys will be boys. I'll just, uh, uh, I'll forget it this time or I'll cut the punishment back. So severity is a very, very harsh word, and, and Paul throws it out there.
0: That is really important, though, because when you consider what Christ did for us in fulfilling the law and also being the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world through his shed blood, that means that God did not relax the standard. He made Jesus pay the full price. That means even more than when you're looking at what Jesus did.
2: I hadn't thought of that, and I appreciate you sharing that. If, you ever, ever, if we ever want to see God's severity, go to the cross.
0: Yeah. Wow, that is interesting. And an
2: innocent person is doing it because of mercy and grace and love.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. But, you know, when you talk about the goodness and the severity of God, as you say, we have this tendency in the church to sometimes camp out on one of those words or the other. Yeah. What do you say to people about what God is like? Clearly, His attributes and divine nature are revealed in the pages of Scripture. How would you explain to somebody a balanced explanation of God's character that, that does not take any shortcuts and doesn't leave out anything.
2: Hmm. Obviously I would tell them, look at the book, uh, scripture, not necessarily, uh, some sermon online or some, something in uh, some it release online. Look at the, the whole Bible. Um, uh, even, even that journey of Moses that I talk about in the second chapter, First encounter with God was threatening, take off your shoes, it's holy ground. I can't imagine the fear that Moses was experiencing. The second time he encounters God, they're on the road to Egypt, and and he's prepared to kill Moses. Now that's severity. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: But if you follow that journey of Moses through the the book of Exodus, you find him getting so familiar that the phrase is used, he spoke as man. A man, or man with man, when God spoke to him. Yeah. And then Moses gets so courageous, he said, I want to see your glory. Now there's a man who saw both sides and came to love and re- appreciate and respect both sides, the harsh and the severe, or the harsh and the uh, gentle, kind nature of God.
0: Yes, he did, and, and yet that changed over time, as you point out. His perception of the Lord right. started out one way, but it was as God revealed who he really was that Moses began to mm-hmm. understand. As we, I mean, this is true for us as well in a much more modified way than Moses, clearly, but sometimes it takes a while for us as Christians to, to have that kind of fellowship with the Lord and see him working in ways that make us understand, wow, you, you're greater than I imagined, Lord.
2: Hmm. You know, we call ourselves Christ followers, that suggests journey, traveling. I think for every one of us, we may start the journey with a certain perspective, perspective of God that may be not quite square with Scripture. And as we grow, as we stay in the Word, that uh, misperception corrects, whether it be starting severe and learning His grace, or growing up in a very liberal, socially liberal home where discipline was very light. Yep. I may grow up with a God and changing it
0: yeah hang on just a moment Sid Brestal, we're going to go to a break God in His Own Image is the book stay with us This is Janet Mafford. We're partnering with Bible League International to send God's Word to 1,500 Bibleist believers in Africa. In many parts of countries like Kenya, Tanzania, Ghana, and Mozambique, as many as nine out of ten Christians are denied God's Word because of corrupt governments, majority religions, remoteness, and poverty. They've never been able to read 1 Peter 5 7. Cast your cares on Him, for He cares for you. Reading that promise of God means everything to you and me, and now it will mean Means so much to these bible Christians In Africa when you respond Here's Pastor John in Mozambique
2: One occasion I found a pastor That uh, was uh, leading A church of 90 church members And he was Having one Bible That was starting from Exodus and Ends to the Ephesians And he was leading the church With that Bible So When we went to give them the Bible, imagine joy. They sang, they danced, they cried, and they praised God for the gift.
0: Of the Bible. $5 sends one Bible, $100 sends 20, $500 sends 100, and your gift of any size will help us meet our goal of sending 1,500 Bibles to Africa. Call 800 Yes Word, 800 YESWORD, or there's an Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa banner to click at janetmefford.com. Actually, the, the need is great. If you could remember the other picture of a lady who was trying to show me the Bible, that Pastor, I understand you work with Bible leak, but we don't have Bibles here. So that, that, that lady had a Bible from Exodus to the book of Hebrews. That's all. You see that? So there is a great need of Bibles. Send God's Word to a Bibleist believer in Africa today for only $5. Call 800 YESWORD. We are back on Janet at Meffer today. It's great to have you with us and great to have with us Sid Brestle, who is the author of God in His Own Image, loving God for who He is, not, what we, not who we want Him to be. And that's a really important thing that we all need to grasp. We are to worship God in spirit and in truth. And Sid, you were mentioning that, you know, we have both extremes. We have people who tend to see God as a harsh taskmaster, and that's all they really understand is the harshness or the severity of God, as Romans 11, 22 points out. And on the other side, side of the fence you have people who will say oh God is love and God would never send anybody to hell and you do use Moses as an example and you show how his experiences changed his first impression of God so when he gets to the point of saying to the Lord you know I want to see your glory what does that reveal to you about what Moses finally grasped about God?
2: I think my answer would be look at what God says to Moses you can't see my glory no one can do that and live that talks about a A God that is transcendent. I can't put him in a box. I can't completely understand or comprehend him. But God says, you'll see as I pass by. And then as he passes by, he introduces himself to Moses. I am the Lord. I am the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. I'm the existent one, self-existent. And then he says, I'm the God who delights. And he he first shares the softer attributes. I delight Mm -hmm. in loving kindness. I, I delight in justice. I, in, I delight in righteousness. These are the things I love to do. I'm forgiving to to uh, a, a thousand generations. And then, a, and then he turns around and says, but I will not spare. And then he's specifically talking, I think, in that case about idolatry. Those who once knew him or have been taught about him and then created an idol. But then comes out the harsher attributes. And I, I would discipline even to the third and fourth generation. So he exaggerates and first introduces his love. He wants to be known as a loving God. You mentioned a while ago God is love. That's a verse in, in the Bible that mm-hmm. describes God. But I think we have a def, definition of love, always kind, always good, always gentle, never mad, never angry. And that isn't necessarily love. So so I think when God introduces himself, he He. He's telling me, I want you to appreciate me as a, an approachable, loving God, but respect me. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, our God is a consuming fire, like, right? We,
2: we maybe, go ahead.
0: Yeah, I, I was thinking of Hebrews saying our God is a consuming fire, and that brings back yeah, the story yeah. of Moses in the burning bush. I mean, we see it in, all over the yeah. Old Testament, too.
2: Correct, yeah.
0: Well, it's interesting because our culture also adds some confusion, doesn't it, about who God is. We have not only a plurality of religions uh, expressed among people who are living in this country and throughout the world, clearly. But how do you see culture getting in the way of our view of God, even as Christians? Because you, you would think that every Christian would have a very true view of God and not get unbalanced as to his kindness or his severity. But culture does play a part. And I'm wondering what your thoughts have been on the influence of culture on how we see God.
2: To me, the most obvious is we can no longer sharing the gospel with somebody, use the word God and seem they're thinking about the same person I am. Hmm. When I grew up, even though kids didn't go to church, we had the same view of God, the God of Scripture. Right. Today, with uh, the, the eclectic, eclectic religions that we have, with New Age religion, with so many Eastern religions coming in, you have to just define who God is. He's a person, not an influence. He's a person who relates to us. He's not just—I'm not just his servant. I can be his child. So, I think culture, because of its move toward political correctness. Mm-hmm kind of pushes us toward, well, we don't want to say anything that might rock the boat. Uh, let's just soften it up, and especially until they become believers, and then we can tell them the rest of the truth. <laughs> so they're coming to know or trust a God that they don't even understand. Right. I love what Jesus says in John 17:3 in his high priestly prayer there, uh, before the garden and before the arrest and the crucifixion. He says, you have given to me all those that you have chosen, Yep. that I might give them eternal life and this is eternal life that they may know you the eternal God that's great uh, and so we've been introducing people and even in we've got to stop and clarify who this person is and really emphasize that he is a person because with uh, uh, the new age movement and some of the other philosophies God becomes impersonal almost pantheistic rather than the God that you mentioned, try tri, triune God.
0: Right, exactly. That's exactly right. And I think that that's what God would have us do is to explain him correctly to people. And, and you also see this, don't you, with, with Jesus himself, the second person of the Trinity, where you have the meek and mild baby in the manger, you know, the sentimentality <laughs> that you sometimes have people uh, hang on to at Christmas time, especially. But the contrast of that is Jesus is the conquering king of Revelation. So what wow. about explaining to people, reconciling, the truth about Jesus: Yes, He did come as a helpless baby, but Revelation is also true.
2: And, and that's what Hebrews is saying: that Christ is the perfect reflection of what the Father is like. If I want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Uh, the people that say I don't like the angry God of the Old Testament, I love Jesus. Which Jesus? <laughs> you know, in that one chapter, I ask them, uh, "What's your favorite picture? What's your favorite memory of Jesus?" Is He the Lion? or the lamb? Hmm. Is he the shepherd with the little lamb in his arms? Is the, the man sitting on a, on a seat and with little children on his lap, uh, blessing them? Or is he the, the man walking through the seven churches in the book of Revelation,
0: right.
2: and critically evaluating each church, commending the things that are still positive? Not only criticizing, but warning, severely warning, The churches, even some of them, it would result in the extinction. And then move through the book of Revelation and see this lion, now the king, royal king riding on a war horse with blood on his robe, and king of kings and lord of lords. Uh, We have to to accept Jesus both sides, too. And I think, again, we tend to love Jesus in the manger, Jesus uh, rubbing the little children's hair Uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000, Jesus touching a leper. I love that. Mm -hmm. I love preaching about that passage in Luke where he reached out and touched a man who probably hadn't felt a human touch for years. But I also have to appreciate he's the Jesus that rebukes the Pharisees for being hypocrites and whitewashed tombs, who grabs a whip and begins to drive them out of the temple, accusing them of turning the Father's house into a den of seas. He's my Jesus,
0: too. Right. Right. Yeah, that's right. Well, and, and you cannot, again, we, we don't have the ability to wipe away characteristics of God that we find to be uncomfortable because that isn't how it works. I think, again, we have this tendency. To, we want to be the potter and we want God to be the clay just a little bit. <laughs> We'd like to shave off those characteristics that make us uncomfortable. That's not how it works. We're We are the, we are the clay. He is the potter.
2: The subtitle of the book, Loving God for Who He Is, Not Who We Would Like Him to Be or Who We Would Like Him to Be. He is who he is. I can't remake him into my image. I love the quote, I think that it was Drew Dick gave in the endorsements. Mark Twain makes the statement, uh, God created us in his image and now we're trying to do him a favor by creating him in our image. Right. Someone say somebody we can manage.
0: Yeah, and that's not not the way it is. It's not truth to convey God that way. That's right. Sid, what would you say in the final analysis when you talk about the importance of enjoying God, going back to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, mm-hmm. enjoying God forever? That seems to be, for some people, a hang-up. Well, wait a minute. Okay, I can worship God, and I can believe in God, and I can believe the gospel, and I can be transformed by the Holy Spirit because I have faith in Jesus Christ. How do I enjoy God in my day-to-day Christian life?
2: I enjoy my wife more after fifty three years by spending time with her. I know her deeply now. I enjoy her more. It's a relationship, it's the same thing with God. As I am willing to be open and read the word of God and accept what he says and what he reveals himself and what he says and what he does. I become to, to I come to that point, I believe, where I'm comfortable with him, I can enjoy him both with the severity with the severity as, as well as with the kindness. Okay. I, I love Isaiah 40. It's uh, talking about the Babylonian invasion. Imminent. Horrible things are going to happen. He describes the horrendous uh, cost of life. Chapter 40 begins with, Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to them. Hmm. And the response comes back, What can I say? What should I say? In verse 10, the answer was, Shout from the mountaintop
0: behold your God. Oh, that is tremendous. Well, the book is called God in His Own Image. Sid Brestel is our guest and the author of this great book. And it was so good to have you here, Sid. Thank you very, very much for joining us.
2: Thank you, Janet, for the opportunity.
0: My pleasure. God bless you. Thanks a lot for joining us here on Janet Meffer today. We'll see you next time. This hour has been brought to you by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD.